Church. Hey, good morning, isn't it? Beautiful spring day, central Illinois. This is as good as it gets around here, people. You got to soak it up. All right. Uh, uh, two trivial, uh, two announcements. One trivial, uh, one significant. Uh, first of all, uh, our own Rick Velick shot a Boone and Crockett black bear up in up in uh, Canada earlier this uh, year, and his freezer went bad, and so the hide and everything has spoiled, uh, which is indeed a tragedy. <laughs> um, you have no idea. Um, but he needs, some, he needs some help from about four guys getting that freezer out of his basement so he can deal with the smell uh, of, uh, of rotted hide, uh, get it out of his... Uh, out of his basement. So if you can help him with that, connect with Rick after the service, uh, offer your condolences <laughs> and, and help him get that freezer out of there. Um, the other more significant announcement is that since we are here, uh, the world did not end yesterday. <laughs> All right. Um, I, and something you may want to do if you're keeping track is mark that guy down as a false teacher. Okay. Uh, just word of application here from Second Peter. Somebody says the world's going to end. If it doesn't end on his calendar, he's a false teacher, okay? Biblically, the standard for prophets is 100% accuracy, 100%, okay? Read your Deuteronomy. It will tell you. If this guy is wrong one time, he's a false prophet. This guy has been wrong three times. Apparently, he's playing baseball, okay? But three strikes and you're out <laughs> in baseball, one strike and you're out in terms of prophecy, all right? Um, but uh, I, I, was, I was excited about it, uh, about this, all this publicity that surrounded this for a couple of reasons. One, I thought, well, either Jesus will return, in which case I'll be in heaven and there'll be a lot to celebrate, or he won't and I'll have a killer sermon illustration. <laughs> <laughs> And either way, I was good with it, you know? I mean, it, it, um, it, uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to pick up in 2 Peter chapter 3, which is about, by the way, the end of the world and Jesus returning. Uh, it didn't happen yesterday, but it is going to happen. It is going to happen. You were here last week. Um, you you um, heard the first part of chapter 3, but... Jesus' return is a certainty. It is going to happen. It is going to take place. Uh, although I prefer to go with Jesus rather than this guy from California. Uh, because Jesus said, no one knows the hour. And no one knows the day. Not even the Son, but only the Father. Now, I have some questions about how that works. But... I take it as a given that what Jesus said is true, that you can't necessarily predict exactly when, but you can start to recognize some of the signs of the coming of the Lord, and that we are, uh, in fact, biblically speaking, we are, since the resurrection of Jesus, in the last days. Now, it may seem like to you and to me that the last days have gone on a while, been 2,000 years or so. Uh, since the resurrection. Uh, but from God's perspective, as we saw last week, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. God exists outside of time, and 
when his, and his timing is different than ours. And so when his timing, according to his perfect plan, comes about, then the return of the Lord will happen. Now, um, I want to give you just a couple of illustrations of, of, um, of what the coming of the Lord is going to be like. Uh, many of you know that Karen and I are getting ready to start uh, celebrating our 15-year anniversary on June 1st. And we are going down to Florida without our children. They're going to be in the watchful care of my parents at, uh, at Camp Horn uh, over in Indianapolis. They'll get to ride the mule and fish and swim in the pond and uh, do all the, all the fun stuff, you know, play in the playhouse, you know, swing from the rafters in the barn. I don't care. I don't know what they're doing, okay? Uh, they're going to have lots of fun, and we are going to get on an airplane and fly down to Florida and spend about eight days on the beach and come back tanned and relaxed and rested, and it's going to be great. Um, and, I, and we're really anticipating that. But about 15 years ago, I was really anticipating the actual wedding. And nothing was going to keep me from that day. I don't care what it was. I'm talking floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, car accidents, road construction. It did not matter. I was getting married on June 1st at 2.30 at Upland Community Church. It was going to happen. Why? Because this was a major life-altering event which has turned my life from kind of uh, this way, okay? It is, and nothing was going to happen that was going to impinge on that. And I was altering my behavior with reference to that event. If my boss had told me I just started a a new job at an insurance company uh, back in uh, February when I graduated college, and I'd only been working there a few months, and if they had told me I could not have off, I was going to quit, I will get a new job, but I'm going to get married, and I'm going to go on my honeymoon. Um, it was a life-altering event, and my behavior changed with reference to it. Every As it got closer and closer, I started packing. I started getting my stuff ready. Now, we also have four children. And uh, those of you who have children know that that last, when you hit about that 36-week marker, that your behavior starts to alter a little bit. And if you're the husband, you start, you start listening for things like, oh, um, oh, I felt a lot of kicks today. Oh, I'm having lots of contractions. You know, because you know that it could be basically any time between there and about 42 weeks, you're having a baby. So you've got about a six-week window where you've got your cell phone on, you've got the volume turned up, if you've, got, if you've got a special ringtone for her, you have it turned up loud so that you know that when that baby is coming, you don't know exactly what day the baby is coming, but you know the baby is coming soon. And your behavior is altered. And so I don't know what, you know, when, when, our, when our kids were, were being born, I still remember this very clearly, uh, on the night Ashley was born, uh, I had I had been up about 16 hours, and I had just 
had a, I just had this major evangelistic event kickoff that I was doing, shared the gospel with a bunch of people, and I got home and it was about, I don't know, it must have been about 10 o'clock, and Karen was downstairs watching Indiana Jones, and she says, I think tonight's the night, and I said, I'm going to go to bed, and I'm going to sleep for about an hour, <laughs> and if the contractions are still there in an hour, wake me up. <laughs> Um, and in about an hour, she woke me up, and I went with her to the hospital, and the next morning, about 6 o'clock, Ashley was born. But my behavior had altered. I was, was listening. I was trying to figure out, okay, is today the day? Am I going to get through all these things that I've got to get done? Because there's only so much time, and I don't know exactly which day, but I know there's a certain day, and it's soon. And so if you're going to do stuff, you need to do it quickly, right? Um, now, why do I pick those two analogies of a wedding and a birth of a child? Because Jesus does. In the, in, over and over, when Jesus talks about the day of the Lord coming, he talks about it with reference to a woman in childbirth and uh, the coming of him as the groom for his bride. And so you have parables like the parable of the ten virgins, which are about the return of Christ. And he's going to come back to claim his bride. And you have, of course, this idea of, he says, he says, now when these things start to happen, these are the beginning of the birth pains, right? These are the first contractions. These are the things that tell you uh, this is all about to happen here in a short period of time. I believe very strongly that though we have been in the last days for about 2,000 years, that what we may be witnessing in our lifetime is the beginning of the birth pains. I don't know that that's true. But I have been looking forward to giving this particular message from very, before we started Second Peter, that the Lord is coming back. And all signs are pointing that way. Now, I don't know that it will be today. I don't know that it will be tomorrow. I don't know when it will take place, but someday and soon the Lord is coming. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. 
Now, this, this verse, uh, verse 11, that you uh, start off with, is drawing a conclusion based on the previous section. And last week, we saw that Peter said that Jesus coming is going to be surprising like a thief in the night. You don't know, you don't expect to get robbed. You don't know when that's going to happen. If you did, you would sit up with the shotgun in the living room. But it's going to be surprising. It's going to be surprising. And, and when it comes, the destruction that will come on the heavens and the earth, the present heavens and the present earth, which have allowed evil to persist, the, the present heavens and present earth are going to be destroyed along with the wicked people that inhabit the earth. And Peter says, since everything is going to be destroyed this way, and everything is going to be, every person and all of their stuff is going to be laid bare before God, you ought to live in a way consistent with that belief. If you actually believe that Jesus is returning, and that his return will be sudden and will be catastrophic for wicked people, then you ought not be a wicked person. Amen? And see, the thing is, whenever the Bible gives you what, the, what uh, if, I'm going to give you a $50 crossword puzzle word, okay? An eschatological passage. What that means is, is a passage that talks about the last eschatos things, okay? The last things. A passage that is eschatological in nature. It talks about the, the end of all things. Uh, it gives it to us for two reasons. It is not primarily, by the way, this is not one of the reasons, to satisfy your curiosity and to answer all your questions. Okay? Lots of times people read the Bible and they go, oh, I want to read Revelation. I want to read Daniel. I want to read uh, 1 Thessalonians. I want to read all the, all the major eschatological books in Scripture because I want to find out all the details about how all this is all going to come together. And guess what? When you get done with your study, you're going to have a lot of answers, but you're also going to have a lot of questions. And you're not going to have everything laid out for you. But the two reasons that all of that is given to you is this. Encouragement, first of all. That you as a believer in Jesus Christ are not a fool. That you are not an idiot for, who has uh, given their life for a myth and a story that isn't going to come true, that you're going to wind up being um, among, as Paul says, among all men most miserable, most to be pitied, because you've given your life in sacrifice for something that has no basis in reality. The Bible gives us these eschatological passages to let you know that as dark as things might get, and sometimes they can get really dark. If you don't believe me, ask a believer if you get a chance from North Korea. They can get dark. Ask somebody who has spent time in a Chinese prison. Ask a believer in Saudi Arabia or in Egypt or in Jordan or in lots and lots of countries around the world what it's like to be a believer in hard places. And they will tell you that they cling to those passages about the Lord's return that where justice will roll down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Because they want to know 
that that my sacrifice that I'm making is not in vain and that I'm going to wind up on the winning team. It may look like we're down by four touchdowns and five minutes to go in the fourth quarter, but we're going to wind up with victory on the other side of this because our star quarterback is going to show up. And you need that encouragement when things get tough. But the other reason is this, is exhortation. Exhortation. What that means is this, that these things are told you to keep you going in the midst of things, but they're also told you to tell, to tell you, look, your life ought to change. Your behavior ought to alter in light of what is about to happen. So when you're about to have a baby, you keep a bag packed by the door or maybe in the van, ready to go. You keep your, you keep your wife on speed dial. And she has you on speed dial. And you know that when the Darth Vader march plays or whatever, that she it's her on the phone. You need to answer. Okay. Um, that may be a bad example. <laughs> Maybe you ought to pick like uh, Sunshine and Roses or something. I don't know. But anyway, but whatever, whatever song you've got, your behavior ought to alter. And you ought to be able, when you make plans with people, well... I'll have dinner with you that night, but you need to understand there's a caveat. Karen calls. I'm gone. I'm sorry. I'm at the hospital. We've left. You know, uh, your behavior ought to alter uh, with, with certain future reality. Things that are going to happen ought to change your behavior in the here and now while you're waiting on them to happen, right? Uh, particularly when you've got a major life-altering event. So uh, what kind of changes do you think we ought to have? Peter tells us, verse 11 and 12, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So three things you have to do. Live a holy and godly life. Pretty much understand what that means, right? Be putting off sin and putting on the character of Christ through the power of the Spirit and the conviction that comes from reading the Word, right? Live a holy and godly life. Uh, number two, look forward to the coming of the Lord. I, I wake up every day, and, I, and, and particularly if it's a tough day, I have no problem thinking this, maybe a day, <laughs> Okay. If, I, if I'm anticipating that today is going to be like getting a root canal through my armpit, it's real easy to go, perhaps today the Lord will return. But every day, and the older I get, you know, now that I, now that I have creaks and pops uh, in my hips and ankles and knees that I did not used to have, and those are going to get worse, by the way, um, you know, my hip stiff, my right hip stiffens up when I ride in the car for too long, and I have to get out and stretch it, right? Uh, and the older I get, the, the easier it is for me to look forward to the return of Christ. And then he says this, and speed, it's coming. The Greek word is speed. It literally is. Speed, his coming. And what he means is this. 
that you don't live in a holy and God-honoring way simply for yourself and the sake of your own relationship with God, although you should. We do it because our godliness, our prayers, our example to other people bring more people into an awareness that there is a God who transforms people's lives in relationship with Him, and then that leads them through a very natural means to asking you questions about your life and how come your life is different than my life, and an opportunity to share the gospel with them, and then some of those people come to faith in Christ. And when they do, guess what? That actually speeds up the Lord's coming. Because there is a fixed number of people, a fixed proportion of individuals that God has specifically chosen, according to the Bible, people who will come to faith in Him. And every time one of them does, the clock ticks a little closer the return of Christ. And so every time that you live in a way that draws other people to Christ, you are speeding the Lord's coming. Look at verse 12 and 13 here. Peter says, look, and he says this again. This is his, he repeats the same thing several times in this passage. This is his second time he tells you what's going to happen to the universe. That day, the day of God, will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Shoot your hand up this morning if you're tired. Tired. Now, keep your hand up. If I'm not just talking about physically tired, I'm talking about wore down. Life can be wounding. Life can be hard. Life can beat you down with all kinds of tough circumstances. Maybe your marriage is tough. Maybe your relationship with your kids is rough. Maybe your job, you've got a new boss who um, is the definition of a pain in the neck. And every Because every day you come home and you've got one, okay, uh, from dealing with this, this man or this woman who is your boss, right? And you just get beat down. And tired. Maybe you've got physical issues, chronic disease, maybe, or hormone problems, or all kinds of other issues, and you're just tired. Peter tells us we who are believers in Christ are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home. Of righteousness, I actually like. I think it's the NAS that that renders it where righteousness dwells, and I like that because the idea is is that the earth that and the new heavens and the new earth that we are looking forward to is not one just like this one, where people get sick 
and people are sinful and there's thorns and weeds and freezers that go bad and, you know, things like that that are just, ugh. It's just after a while, you just get tired of this life. But where righteousness dwells, where there's no corruption, either personally or governmentally or naturally or environmentally or any of that, where righteousness dwells, we are looking forward to that. And then he continues, he says, look here, and again, this is the same, he repeats the same thing. Why does he do that, by the way? Because if there is a word that you could write over Second Peter, it's this word, remember. And so he repeats himself constantly because he wants us to remember what he's telling us. He says, so then, since you're looking forward to this, let me tell you again, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. You remember how he described the false teachers? He said they were blots and blemishes. And it's a word describing from the Old Testament an unacceptable sacrifice. You weren't allowed to offer to God any lambs or goats or what have you that had spots and blemishes. Anything that had scars and wounds and you know pustules and this kind of stuff was not an acceptable sacrifice to God. And Peter says that false teachers are those kinds of things. But he says, you be like an acceptable sacrifice, spotless and blameless. We should be morally clean, in other words. And he says, and make every effort to be at peace with God. Let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a kid do something they really don't want to do? Ever watch that? Um, it's kind of fun sometimes. It can be entertaining. Um, I, I get some laughs out of it at least. You know, we're going to watch this kid stomp around doing this, you know. Um, but, you know, they get the job done maybe, but... A lot of times they do it in such kind of a lackadaisical, haphazard fashion that you wonder how this is ever going to get accomplished, right? It's like if you would just go out there and cut the grass without complaining, you know, it would take you less time to stand in here whining and crying about it, stomping around the garage, you know. Um, at least that's what Karen told me last week. <laughs> um, but anyway... Um, but here's the deal, okay? When you put forth the effort and apply yourself to the task of ridding yourself of sin and the Holy Spirit works in you, um, then you actually achieve a level of moral purity and moral cleanliness. And being at peace with God is a function of your relationship with, with God through faith in Christ. Uh, through His blood, we have forgiveness of sins and we attain peace with God. But I think Peter is also telling us, just like he did in chapter 1, to be sure you actually are at peace with God. Because a lot of people think, a lot of people think that they know God who actually don't. 
I had occasion this last week, this, actually, this really happened. I had a conversation with somebody, and I asked them about their relationship with God, and I said, and I, it, what I was hearing did not sound good. And so I said, if you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And the person said to me, well, I have always tried to be a loving and caring person, but somehow that doesn't sound like that's quite good enough. And I said, well, in point of fact, according to the Bible, it's not. Would you like to know how to be at peace with God? And what Peter is doing here is this. And, and it was great because I got an opportunity to share. And that person told me, yeah, I believe that. And they are today at peace with God. But Peter is saying this. Look, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. So you better make every effort to make sure that you actually know God. Because you don't want to be one of those people that Jesus talked about. Remember, he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not in your name? And they list their whole list of stuff, including cast out demons and preach in the name of Jesus. And he says, and I will say unto them, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You, in other words, doer of evil. I never knew you. Okay, Peter says, you don't want to be one of those guys, so you make sure that you really do know God and are at peace with him because he's coming back and he will judge, and you don't want to be on the wrong side of that judgment. You do not want to be on the wrong side of that judgment. And he says, look here. He repeats again in verse 15 what he said in verse 9, that God's patience means salvation. In other words, why does God, you know, people ask a lot of times that they have lots of questions about Christianity, and one of the most common questions that I get asked is this one. How come if God is loving, he doesn't judge evil? That's not the question. The question is, how come he doesn't judge evil now? Because the Bible clearly explains that God is going to judge evil. And when he gets rid of evil, he will get rid of it root and shaft. He will get rid of wicked demons. He will get rid of wicked people, wicked teachers, wicked prophets. He will get rid of the sun that gave light to sustain the earth on which wicked people had their existence the moon which gave them light to carry on their evil in the dark. He will get rid of evil completely. Amen? And, and so God is going to get rid of evil. Why doesn't he get rid of evil right now? I always turn that question around and I say, well, what if God decided to get rid of evil, all of the evil in the world, starting with you? Well, now all of a sudden, it's a very personal question. Because that guy doesn't really want to get rid of evil. He wants to get rid of all the people who bug him. But God does not judge on that kind of a standard. He's not got a slide rule up there going, well, the slightly kind of maybe a little less evil people, they're going to be okay, but I'm going to get rid of all the really wicked evil people. Now, God is going to judge evil fully and finally all at once. 
And the dead, small and great, will stand before the great white throne. And the books will be opened. And they will be judged according to what is written in the books. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Peter says that God's patience, his waiting, is for salvation. It's so that there's all kinds of time that's given for people to repent. You know, when, when here's the thing that's interesting. If you, um, you look at Genesis, when the flood came, you've got this guy, Methuselah. You remember him? Oldest guy in the Bible, 969 years old. You know what his name means? When he dies, judgment. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if, if, it, if you had a kid named that, when he dies, judgment, and it was like, and the next day the flood fell, right? No. Methuselah is the oldest guy in the Bible. Why? God is patient. And he was patient waiting all these years for the ark, Noah's family be built. And when it was built, and when all the people who were going to be saved went in, God shut the door, and then judgment fell. And God is saving a people out of this wicked world, and when the last of them that are going to be saved are saved, the Lord will return, and judgment will fall. Peter says, be sure you're going to be on the right side of that. And he says, look here, and if, you, and if you have questions about this, you can check into Paul. Our dear brother Paul also writes about these things, and he writes the same way in all his letters. Uh, and his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Can I just say amen, Peter? <laughs> okay. Uh, some things that Paul says are hard to get your arms around. But he says, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. Now, that's interesting. Better underline that. Take note. In Peter's day, Peter dies in 68 AD under the persecution of Nero. But already, within 35 years after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul is considered by Peter to be scripture. Okay? You go and you take a university class and they talk to you about your New Testament. They're going to tell you some song and dance story about how all this stuff was built up over a long period of time. And, you know, there was legends passed down. Da, 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 da. And then it was kind of recognized sort of as being kind of sort of authoritative Bible. No. Peter says, all is Scripture. Okay. That's a whole different narrative than, than the one that gets told in university religion classes. Which one's right? Peter's right. <laughs> We're going to go with that, okay? We're going to go with, I'm going to go with the guy raised from the dead who appointed apostles who carried on the ministry of Jesus, who saw the resurrected Jesus and who spoke as they were carried along by him, by the Spirit. Okay, um, he says, look here. Oh, and by the way, um, and this little bit about um, ignorant and unstable people distort, by the way, that's still going on. Let me just put that out there. That's still going on. 
there's, there's currently right now a, fo- a group of scholars in the academic community that are coming out with called the New Perspective on Paul. That all that bit about justification by faith and substitutionary atonement and all that stuff that, that everybody said, this is what Paul teaches, they're all going, no, 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 you don't understand any of that. Peter says, ignorant and unstable people distort him like they do the other scriptures. I don't care how many PhDs he's got after his name. The Bible teaches what it teaches, and people distort it to their own destruction. Last thing here. Uh, You've got a final warning, a final exhortation, and a final prayer. Final exhortation. Since you already know this, be on guard that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Here's the thing. I've got fruit trees in my yard right now I just planted. Uh, We're going to have peaches in about three years. It's going to be great. Okay. Best time to plant peach trees, I told my kids, was three years ago. Um, Second best time is today. So we're planting today. All right. Um, But peach trees need some things. One of the things they need is protection. They need protection from bunny rabbits who like to eat the bark and stuff off of them and kill them. Uh, They need protection from deer. They need protection from the birds who will eat the fruit off of them. Um, They need protection from the weather. They also need nourishment, right? They need fertilizer. They need water. They need nutrients out of the soil. And Peter, in this last little section, gives us two things, protection, nourishment. He says, protect yourself from the error of lawless men. He says, if you know this stuff, measure what you're taught by it so that you can be protected and not, be, and not fall victim to every Tom, Dick, and Harry who comes down the pike saying, that this is what I think. You've got to pay attention. If you already know this, be on guard. Be protected. And then he says, grow in grace and knowledge. This is the nourishment component of the spiritual life. He says, grow in grace and in knowledge. We need God's grace to be the kind of people who live in holiness uh, with God through the Son by the Spirit. Amen? We need grace to do that. But part of growth in the, in the spiritual life is also has a knowledge component. God has given us a lot of content, and He intends for us to know His mind and to understand Him. And so we have to stay away from bad stuff, take in good stuff, right? Keep your tree away from the rabbits and point it toward the sun. Plant it in good soil. Give it fertilizer, right? And then he says, so to him be glory both now and forevermore. Amen. Now that's his concluding prayer. This is a this is a pretty application heavy text. I could I could preach literally another two hours on this. Easy. Okay? Uh, not a problem. I can do it. You want to watch? Um, no. Um, seriously, uh, seriously, though, let me just draw one, draw one thing to a conclusion. And this is, this, I'm very serious on this. Peter's last line, to him be glory now and forever. Amen is the point of this book. 
the point of this book. That there is going to be glory forever and ever. Amen? And so there ought to be glory in the here and now. Amen? He says both now and forever. And you may not know it, but here's the point of the Bible, that you exist. I'll summarize the whole thing for you. Genesis to Revelation. This is what the Bible is about. You as a human being are created to give glory to God. You as a human being are created to give glory to God. And you're to glorify Him in how you live and how you think, how you speak to one another, how you carry on relationships with other people, how you carry on your relationship with God. It's meant to give glory to God. And Peter says, look, the whole point of this is that we would be changed by the Spirit of God because of the Word of God into people who give glory to God. And we're to give glory in every aspect of our life, in our speech, in our relationships, in our thinking, in our conduct. Everything in total is to give glory to God because we will give glory in the, in the hereafter. We ought to give glory now. So to Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank You for this text. I thank You for this book of Second Peter, which warns us away from false teachers, which gives us good, solid, biblical, God-honoring teaching, and which exhorts us and encourages us with the knowledge of the coming of the Lord. Father, we treasure that knowledge, that our destiny is certain, that our hope is in is not just in some random event or some leap by faith into the darkness without knowing if you were there to catch us on the other side. It's in something solid that Jesus Christ, the same one who was raised from the dead, is coming back for us who are his children, and to carry us into his kingdom. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, as we read, as we study, as we pray, as we seek to obey by the Spirit according to your grace, that you would change us and make us holy and blameless before you so that we might be at peace with you and bring you glory forevermore. Father, help us to change now so that we bring glory to you just as much now as then. And Father, we ask it by your grace. We need your mercy. And we pray that you will send both in abundance to us, that we might glorify you more tomorrow than today, and more on Tuesday than on Monday, and more on Wednesday than Tuesday, and more this year than, than last, and more next year than this year. Father, change us, make us yours. Make us look like your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.